0: Hello, Murder Mystery and Paranormal fans, and welcome to episode three of J.L. Delosier's The Photo Thief. My name's Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on The Photo Thief... A series of strange happenings has Brennan on edge. He finds the mansion's photo room containing dozens of vintage photos of murder victims, cold cases Cassie claims to have solved and wants his help proving. The coroner discovers Aaron's corpse has unusual burns and Cassie's ex-nanny, Ruth, turns out to be a long-dead serial husband killer. Brennan's boss tells him to stop investigating Aaron's death as a murder, or else. Oh, and his dead daughter's image keeps cropping up in bizarre places, including straight out of a crow's mouth.
1: Chapter 15 Light snow, the first of the season, cooled Brennan's flushed cheeks as he stalked through the precinct's lot toward his car. Too powdery to be pretty, the snow melted on the dirty streets and sidewalks, coating them in drab, gray slush. He slumped into the driver's seat and watched the tiny flakes burst into tears on his windshield. He cranked up the heat and dialed Jim. The of photographer answered on the first ring. Are you sufficiently flayed? To a bloody pulp, are you still at the scene? Unfortunately, some kind of bottleneck at the local morgue. Business has been brisk today, from what I hear. Brennan flipped on the wipers. Okay, if I swing by? The more the merrier, I'll text you the address. The traffic on I-95 had snarled to a crawl thanks to the unexpected snow. Brennan, his mood darker than the dreary sky, cursed the entire way to Fishtown. He slid his car to the curb and double-checked the address. Amber's apartment building, an unimpressive hunk of concrete in a not-so-trendy corner of town, loomed tall and gray. Outside, the entrance's dirty glass doors, an undertaker, apparently awaiting the go-ahead to claim her cargo, loitered against her idling vehicle. Despite its gloomy outward appearance, the building's Art Deco lobby was spacious and clean. The elevator buttons capped at twenty, which made Amber's twentieth-floor apartment the penthouse. He stepped off the elevator and whistled. Whoever was forking over the monthly rent had impressively deep pockets. No way Amber's tutoring salary paid for this, even if she was banging the boss. Judging by the old world decor, his money was on La Familia. The rapid clicking of a camera shutter guided him to the living room, where the murder had been staged in front of a sumptuous velvet sofa, laden with tapestry pillows. Jim, sitting cross-legged on the only blood-free patch of carpet, was snapping photos of Amber's hands. Brennan squatted nearby, trying to ascertain the reason for Jim's keen interest. Most of Amber's bright orange nails and at least one of her fingers appeared broken. Blood crusted the gold bling gleaming from every other finger. Looks like she put up a hell of a fight, wouldn't you? Jim's camera clicked a final time and he lowered it from his face. Hopefully those talons of hers will give us some usable DNA. You swab underneath, already done. Despite Amber's apparent struggle, her apartment appeared tidy. No signs of forced entry. Nothing knocked over or in disarray. Not a damned thing out of place. Who found her? Cleaning lady, she has her own key. Brennan rose to his feet, grimacing as his knee clicked in protest. Care if I poke around? We already pulled prints and bagged her phone, laptop, and the contents of her purse. Nothing else seems overly interesting. Yeah, about that. The captain showed me her photo of my business card lying next to Amber's purse. Not standard protocol care to explain? I wish I could. She called me shortly after I hung up with you. Said she wanted everything emailed to her ASAP. I sent her what I had. I assume she heard about it over the scanner when the responding officers called it in. Must be a special case. Jim twisted his camera's lens. I hated to put you on the spot, but I knew you'd have a good explanation. You always do. Was she nasty to you? You could say that. You owe me a beer. Brennan reached into his rear pocket for a pair of gloves. I'm gonna look around. Knock yourself out. Brennan turned and his knee popped again. Jim grinned. I didn't mean that literally, old man. You're less than ten years behind me, Junior. Just wait, your time will come. Brennan made a methodical pass through the apartment's spacious orderly rooms, notable for an interesting lack of personal items. No photos on the wall or dresser. No books or stacks of papers, bills, or receipts. Even her bedroom and bath, the most personal areas of any home, contained utilitarian items only. Clothing, makeup, shoes. He saved the medicine cabinet for last. The most obvious places were often the most revealing. Why anyone opted to hide anything in there, he'd never know. Ambers didn't disappoint. A small medicine bottle, partially obscured behind tubes of toothpaste and mascara, held two tablets out of the prescribed 30. Lorazepam, one milligram daily as needed for sleep or anxiety. It had been prescribed ten days ago by a physician from South Philly, which was Helen gone from Fishtown. He carried it back to the living room. Got an extra evidence bag? Sure, you find something? Jim tossed him a baggie. A bottle of benzos may not mean anything. They're commonly prescribed, from what I hear. But the same medication was found in Aaron McConnell's talk screen, so it's worth bagging. If they were for Amber's personal use, she was hitting them hard. Then again, if I were Ryan McConnell's girlfriend, I'd want to be sedated too. A chatter outside the door alerted them to the gurney's arrival. Jim stashed his camera in a duffel. It's about freaking time. They stepped out of the way, watching as Amber was zipped in a body bag, loaded onto the gurney and wheeled into the elevator. They waited for the next one. By the time they stepped off the elevator and into the lobby, the undertakers had left, their mission completed. Jim and Brennan exited the high rise to a much smaller crowd than when they'd entered. Jim shoved his hands in his pockets. Shit, it's cold out here. When did it start snowing? Hmm? About an hour ago, I think, Brennan murmured his attention elsewhere. A half block away, a man in a puffer jacket loitered despite the cold. and he looked familiar. Keep looking at my face. Brandon smiled at Jim and nodded as if carrying on a casual conversation. There's a dude down the street scoping the scene. I saw the same guy on patrol the night I drove Amber home from the wake. You think he's the killer? They like to watch the investigation, you know, it's a vicarious thrill thing. Jim's gaze drifted over Brandon's shoulder. Eyes on me, you're gonna spook him. Brennan subtly shifted his weight to block Jim's view. You've been watching too much TV. He's not our guy. A pro would never return to the scene, and Amber's murder has the hallmarks of a professional mob assassination. More likely, he's a watchman. When I first saw him, I assumed he worked for the local drug lord. But now that I know Amber's connections, he probably has to report the who, what, and when of the police response to Fishtown's capo, mob captain. He paused. It's the who that bothers me. Jim's eyes widened. You mean us. I mean me, primarily. Remember, my card was in Amber's wallet. He's holding a cell phone, which means he's likely snapped some pictures. Duke can play that game, and I have a telephoto lens. Jim reached for his duffel zipper. No, don't, not yet. He'll run, and he and I need to have a little chat first. You wanna play detective? Jim's face lit with puppy-like enthusiasm. Hell yeah, I mean, I kind of do that already, but in my line of work, everybody's like already dead. Not as dead as Pete's dead, but still, how can you be not as dead? Dead is dead, Jim. Pete's are cold and dead. Sometimes mine are still warm. Brennan stared at Jim's face. Are you done? Yes? Excellent. Here's the plan. Give me five minutes to round the rear of the building and position myself at the end of the block. Then you walk toward him. Telling me you would like to ask him a few questions. That'll flush him in my direction. Oh, and make sure to duck if he pulls a gun. The enthusiasm drained from Jim's face. He readjusted his thick glasses. On second thought, I'm more of a scientist than a detective. Maybe I was joking. He's a lookout, Jim. He won't have a gun, he grinned. Not usually, anyway. I'm not reassured. Look, I'll be watching the whole time and I do have a gun, Talk loudly so I can hear what's going on and send him running my way. Everything will be fine. What if he doesn't run? He will, they always do. With a casual wave, Brendan strolled into the narrow alley between Amber's apartment and the parking deck next door. As soon as he was out of the mobster's line of sight, he dashed to the end, rounded the corner, and waited, flashing Jim a thumbs up. The photographer adjusted the duffel on his shoulder, cleared his throat, and approached the young man. Um, Sir, I'd like to ask you a few questions, if you don't mind. The lookout turned and bolted down the street. Brennan crouched in wait. One, two. He timed his action to the slap of sneakers on wet pavement and extended his foot at exactly the right moment. The watchman tripped, shielding his face with the crook of his arm as he pitched forward. Thanks to his puffy coat, he landed with a muted thud and slid another yard on the sidewalk's icy surface before petering out in a flailing heap. Brennan grabbed the lookout by his collar and hoisted him to his feet. Oh, Hey, geez, sorry about that, buddy. He squinted at the man's face in mock surprise. What a dink! you're just the guy I wanted to talk to. Panting, the watchman squirmed out of Brendan's grasp. I've got nothing for you, man, nothing. Keep your hands where I can see them. We don't need this to get ugly over a few lousy questions. Jim, huffing and puffing under the weight of his heavy equipment, ran down the street to sandwich the young man between them. Brennan gestured at Jim. My friend here's a photographer. How'd you like your pretty face circulated around the police department? Guaranteed to end your career in a flash. Worse yet, if we took you in for questioning. Might even get you killed depending on your employers. The lookout glanced over his shoulder. He swiped his brush-burned palms on his damp jacket. I'm nobody. Watch the girl. See who comes and goes. That's it. They don't tell me nothing. I didn't know she was dead until you guys showed up this morning. Someone else has the night shift. Who's they? The man scuffed his sneakers over the slick pavement. Who's they? Brandon repeated the question, amping up the volume. His voice echoed down the street. The watchman flinched. I work for a guy who works for Mr. McConnell, he mumbled. Ryan McConnell? The mobster maintained his stoic silence. Okay, then how about his big brother, Beck? The lookout shifted his weight. Ding, 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 Brennan shouted. We have a winner because everyone knows Beck looks out for his baby brother, right? I'm not saying you're right. I'm not saying you're wrong either. I will say the chick was playing them, working for the goddamn doggos. If they killed her, and I'm not saying they did, but if they did, what else were they supposed to do? A shiny black SUV zoomed down the street, slowing as it approached the intersection where they stood. The lookout licked his lips and averted his face. Can I go now? Let me see your phone first, nice and easy now. You got a warrant? You got a death wish? Seriously, Slick, mind if I call you Slick? They don't pay you enough for this. Not enough for bail money anyway. I'm sure if I check you have an outstanding arrest warrant or two, or five, and we already talked about what happens to watchmen who pay a visit to the precinct. Scowling, the watchman unlocked his phone and handed it to Brennan. Brennan opened the photos and deleted five headshots of himself and Jim. Next, he skimmed through the contacts and checked the sent folder for recent texts or emails. None. His tension ebbed. You'll notice I didn't ask you your name. The lookout's forehead furrowed in confusion. Brennan tossed the phone in the air. The lookout scrambled to catch it. That's how this works. I forget about you and you forget about me. I wasn't here, we never spoke. We can play it differently if you'd like, but it's liable to get messy real quick. He stepped aside to offer an unimpeded exit. We good? The mobster bobbed his head. Yeah, man, we're good. He backed out of arm's reach, turned and fled. As soon as he disappeared around the corner, Brendan pulled out his phone and began typing. Jim exhaled. Man, that was intense. What are you doing? Writing down his name in case we need to squeeze him again in the future. The owner's name and number are usually at the top of a smartphone's contact list. In his case, so was his address. Brennan flashed a wicked grin. Intense, you say? No punches, no bullets, no blood. We may as well have been sipping tea at the Bellevue. But hey, if you say so. Some of us lead less exciting lives. I, for example, take pictures of dead people and they rarely talk back. Rarely, Brennan raised an eyebrow. Rarely, Jim hoisted the heavily laden camera bag onto his shoulder. That's a story best told over copious amounts of cold beer. Chapter 16 By beer number three, Jim was singing like a second-rate rock star on acid. He strutted the bar's tiny karaoke stage, wailing to a 1980s hairband. Brennan lounged at a corner table, which afforded him an unobstructed view of his colleagues' antics. Pete arrived late, and Brennan waved him into an empty seat. Jim shrieked a window shattering and exceptionally off-key note. Brennan chuckled at Pete's pained expression. I didn't know he had it in him. Pete frowned. You know the old saying, work hard, play hard? Jimbo lives by it. It's a Monday night for cripe's sake. Doesn't he have to work in the morning? I know I do. Relax, you'll be snug as a bug in your bed by ten. Besides, your clients can wait. Brennan flagged the waitress and ordered Pete a beer. On me, Jim's bought the other rounds. See what I mean? His scowl deepened. My, aren't we a cranky old fart this evening? Bad day at the office? Or do you have something scandalous to report? Brennan sipped his winter lager. The karaoke machine screeched with feedback and Pete cringed. Honestly, could there be anything worse than this? I wanted to go to our old standby, but Jim said this is the precinct's hip new hangout. A dude with a mullet and leopard print tank strolled by their table. Brennan suppressed a grin. How'd I let him drag me into this? The waitress delivered Pete's drink. He stared at the trickle of foam tracing a circuitous path down the glass and onto the table. I've been asking myself that for almost a year. The throbbing bass filled their awkward laps in conversation. Brandon set his pint glass on the table. What is it, Pete? Does he know you invited me here? No, we drove separately and I texted you from the car. Figured the more the merrier. Did you two have a falling out or something? I know between L and the divorce, it's been a while since the three of us have gotten together. During which time he asked me for money, a lot of money to cover his gambling debts and overdue child support. It's an ugly story, and that's not the worst of it. Pete shook his head. We need to talk somewhere privately. Ugly doesn't even begin to describe it. Maybe he's drunk enough to tell you himself. The song ended to tepid applause from the crowd. Jim, face flushed and forehead beaded with sweat, bounded off the stage and tottered toward the corner table. His gait faltered when he spied Pete by Brennan's side. Hey, Pete, long time no see. He tumbled into a chair and elbowed Brennan. What do you think, old man? Pretty good, huh? I'm thinking you weren't even born when that song hit the airwaves. Jim flashed a lopsided grin. I was in preschool. I look young for my age. All that clean living. Pete snorted his beer. Jim's gaze flicked between the two older men. He crossed and uncrossed his legs, nearly falling off the chair in the process. What you talking about? Did they miss anything exciting? Pete took a swig of his beer. We were chatting about Dan's case. I examined the corpse and Jim interrupted. Which one? Erin McConnell. I noticed some red marks on her skin and Dan asked me if they might have come from her necklaces twisting around her neck during the fall. Brennan shoved a handful of bar nuts in his mouth to hide his expression. They discussed no such thing. As a matter of fact, he'd been so perplexed by the burns on Aaron's chest, he'd totally forgotten about her necklaces. Pete rocked his chair onto its rear legs. His face disappeared in the dimly lit bar shadowy corner. The funny thing is, she wasn't wearing any necklaces. I checked with evidence collection to see if the police removed them before transferring her to the morgue. They had no record of any jewelry being logged during intake, not even a wedding ring. He paused. Maybe you remember. Was she wearing any jewelry when you processed the scene? I guess I could pull your photos. Jim brushed a lock of damp hair off his forehead. He glanced over his shoulder at the stage where an Aussie wannabe gyrated and slurred a drunken version of Crazy Train. I... I don't remember right now. Too buzzed, I guess. Text me tomorrow, I'll check first thing in the morning, okay? He pushed away from the table and stood, swaying on his feet. I think I've had enough for one night. He fumbled around his pocket for his keys. Too much, I'd say. Brennan jumped to his feet and placed a steadying hand on Jim's shoulder. I'll drive you home. No, no, it's too far out of your way, I'm fine. Jim, you're not driving. Brennan adopted the same no-nonsense tone he used when he used to walk the beat. What kind of cop would I be if I let you get behind the wheel? At least let me call you a cab or Uber or whatever. Jim scowled. I've got it. He pulled out his phone and with a few taps, arranged for a lift. Brennan threw some bills on the table and the three men walked outside together. After the heat of the packed bar, the cold air stung. Brandon cupped his hands around his mouth and blew on his fingers. Jim stared at the sidewalk. You guys don't have to wait. My driver will be here in... He glanced at his phone. Less than five minutes. We'll wait. Brennan glanced at Pete, who nodded. You don't trust me, do you? I never said that. You don't have to. Jim, his expression petulant, wiped the steam from his lenses. I told you I wouldn't drive. I can show you my phone. I called an Uber. It's five minutes, Jim. No big deal. As if on cue, a black sedan pulled to the curb. The driver lowered the passenger window. Jim leaned in, they exchanged words, and he jumped in the back seat. Brennan grabbed the handle. Fasten your seatbelt. He grinned at Jim's exasperated expression. And don't forget to check on those photos, Pete added over Brennan's shoulder. Brennan slammed the door, and the sedan zoomed away in a cloud of exhaust. Pete shook his head. Too bad the rear window's tinted. I bet he's giving us the finger right about now. You gonna tell me what that was all about? Of course. The door behind them opened, disgorging a raucous group of middle-aged men. Pete waited until they'd stumbled on the street. Somewhere quieter though, and not crawling with off-duty officers. Your place or mine? Mine? I was afraid you'd say that. Fine, I'll meet you at the morgue in 10. Brendan didn't like frequenting the morgue during the day, much less at night. Once the cleaning crew packed up their mops and left, An eerie stillness, unrelieved by the occasional hiss from the HVAC system, reigned. The bright lights made it no less intimidating. If anything, the chilly blue fluorescence and somber sterility added to the unnerving effect. Pete didn't seem to care. He whistled a random tune as they waited for his ancient desktop to boot up. For some reason, the cursor's interminable spinning made Brennan queasy. He closed his eyes. Maybe Jim wasn't the only one who'd had too much to drink. Why don't you just tell me what's going on? You don't need to show me, too. At this rate, we'll be here all night. The spinning cursor stopped and the screen flashed a series of precisely labeled folders. Pete glanced at him between clicks. You can't guess? Sure, I can guess. You think Jim's stealing bling off dead people and pawning it to fund his gambling habit. Why didn't you tell me this morning when we reviewed Aaron McConnell's autopsy? If I'd known you planned a bar crawl with Jim, I would have. As you said, it's been a long time since you've painted the town. It wasn't planned. Jim and I worked a scene and he wanted a beer. Guess he doesn't like to drink alone. You're making a serious accusation, Pete. I assume you have proof. Brennan watched as Pete clicked through several subfolders. You realize you just opened a file of takeout menus. I know. Pete clicked the name of his favorite donut shop. Three columns of photos popped onto the screen. The far left displayed victims at their respective crime scenes. The middle column showed the naked corpses laid out at the morgue. The far right was a tabletop shot of the evidence collected at the scene. Pete rolled a second desk chair closer to the screen and motioned for Brennan to sit. I first noticed an issue about six months ago gangbangers, missing gold teeth, that sort of thing. Brendan groaned. Jesus Christ, stealing teeth from dead people. I thought that went out with 19th century grave robbing. It gets worse. After I'd accumulated a dozen or so discrepancies, I cross-referenced them with the personnel involved, from the first responders all the way to the evidence collection clerks. Only one name appeared in all 12 cases. Jim. Pete nodded. Shortly thereafter, he hit me up for money. Said he'd lost big on the ponies. The pieces fell into place. That's pretty good detective work, Pete. I'm impressed. Thanks, he sighed. I hated to do it, but I took the evidence to a supervisor. Guess what happened? Nothing. I followed up for two months until the supervisor stopped answering my calls. Then, around Halloween, I came to work and found that someone had rooted through my office. The original files were missing, both the hard copies I'd printed and the e-files. Fortunately, I'd thought ahead and saved a second copy in my donut file. Sometimes it pays to be paranoid. And obsessive-compulsive. Brennan squinted at the array of photos. From the bottom of the first column, Erin McConnell, Sands' jewelry, stared back. She had two gold necklaces, a crucifix and a clotta. I saw them myself. I'm guessing Jim edits the valuables from the final prints but he's not the first one on scene. A lot of first responders take their own panoramic shots to cover their asses for exactly this reason. They also submit a written list of the victim's personal effects. Jim probably thought no one would notice. Most of the time, those lists and photos aren't cross-referenced unless a loved one complains of something missing. Brennan pictured the diamond rings adorning Amber's broken fingers. Were they still present when he and Jim packed up and left? He hadn't noticed. We'll know for sure once Jim files the pictures from tonight's case. She had a fistful of bling, prime pickings. That's why I brought it up at the bar. Now he knows I'm, we're, on to him. Ms. Hervello arrived shortly after you texted me. She's locked up tight behind a refrigerated door. If he stole anything of hers, it's not like he can put it back. It's a test. If he edits the photos, you're going to notice. If he doesn't, there's missing jewelry to explain. His supervisor won't be able to sweep that under the rug. Brennan frowned. Why would his boss protect him, though? Makes no sense. If word gets out, it makes the whole department look bad, and it's the supers who usually take the fall. Pete shifted in his seat. I never planned to involve you in this. My next step was to move it upstairs to internal affairs, but when I found out Jim was the CSI assigned to your case, I decided you should know. Plain bad luck on your part, I guess. Feel free to pretend I never told you. I won't think any less of you. We're in this together, Pete. Pete's anxious expression disappeared. He sighed. In that case, I have a theory that goes beyond Jim stealing bling for gambling money, if you'd care to listen. It's pretty far fetched, and I have zero proof. Fire away. Pete dragged the cursor across the screen, highlighting the four most recent cases, including Aaron's. I noticed a trend. The first six months, the thefts appeared opportunistic. As I mentioned, gold teeth from gangbangers, bling from prostitutes, items stolen from people whose next of kin weren't likely to fuss. But the last four cases were different. They seemed hand-picked, and the missing evidence wasn't always valuable or easily fenced by the average crook. A cell phone, a set of keys, that sort of thing. I did a deep dive, trying to figure out what they had in common. Pete lowered his voice. Turns out it's the mob. They're all connected some way, somehow. Bar Drive hummed in the otherwise silent room. When Brandon spoke, his voice sounded artificially loud. You said you have zero proof. Correct, but two of the victims had criminal records and suspected ties to La Familia. Jim's last name is Benino. It ain't Scottish. That's profiling in its worst, Pete. I know, but it fits. It certainly explains how Jim could go from begging money to buying us drinks in six months flat. I'm sure the mob payroll reimburses him well to tamper with evidence. Stealing from corpses and tampering with evidence. Brennan's nausea returned. He massaged his forehead. Who's next in the food chain? Excuse me? Who does Jim's supervisor report to? Pete closed the folder and powered down the device. That would be your buddy, Captain Mattern, Brennan sighed. Somehow I knew you were going to say that.
2: Chapter 17 November 7th Fourth Journal Entry My husband bought me a birthday gift. Awkward. I'd already decided to kill him. Today was Ruth's birthday. And her spirits were high, especially after I managed to painstakingly plunk out Happy Birthday on the photo room's Baby Grand. She clapped in delight and regaled me with stories of birthdays past. She'd never received a gift of any kind before her first husband surprised her on her eighteenth birthday with a pair of emerald earrings. She briefly considered changing her plans, but poisoned him anyway. Then, I had enough money to buy my own earrings, she explained. Ones she preferred, diamond, of course, princess cut, big enough to be noticed, but not so big as to imply excess. Extravagance was frowned upon in those days with the depression raging and war looming near. She chafed at being financially dependent on men to survive as was typical of the times, and envied my freedom, though I was quick to explain I was similarly dependent on my parents. I have a glorious surprise planned for today, Cassandra. She clasped her hands in front of her heart. A gift to myself, better than earrings and long overdue, I assure you. What? It's a secret if I told you you'd just blab it to that detective friend of yours you should never have shown him this room I told you before it's our private temple you're far too trusting especially with powerful men she smiled coyly secrets aren't meant to be shared but he can help me figure out who murdered you and the others so you can finally be at peace. That's your job, not his. His role begins and ends with your mother. She waltzed around the photo room in her wedding dress, stopping from time to time to play a snippet of a favored tune on the piano. She ignored my pleas to share her surprise and shrewdly changed the subject. When's your birthday, Cassandra? I told her, and her hand flew to her mouth in mock horror. Oh, dear, I missed it. You should have told me sooner. Oh, well, there's always next year. A strange sensation prickled my skin, and the room grew dark despite the morning sun streaming through the windows. The phantom odor of a burnt match was my final warning. I was about to seize. I needed to flee the photo room. Will you still be here next year? I asked as I stumbled out the door. Of course. Her icy breath licked my neck. Will you? Chapter 18
1: The temperature dropped with nightfall and snow turned to sleet. Thanks to the slick roads, Brennan's drive home took twice as long as usual. He gripped the wheel until his fingers cramped. His neck muscles pulsed with tension. Between work and the weather, tomorrow was gonna be a hell of a day. He dreaded it already. His apartment building appeared even drearier when wet, especially when compared to the gleaming new condos across the street but what it lacked in charm it made up for with underground parking. As long as you didn't mind bats. During the winter, at least one colony established its base in the man-made cave. He eased the car into his designated spot. Devoid of activity given the late hour, the dimly lit and poorly maintained lot acquired a menacing air. He gave his gun an appreciative pat and hurried across the concrete toward the elevator. His footsteps echoed, triggering the bats to stir. Undulating black masses appeared in the garage's four corners. He paused until their shrill chatter faded away. The movement ceased. Elle would have been delighted. She loved bats almost as much as crows. In retrospect, they weren't that much different, at least in the eyes of a five-year-old. Black like her hair. Black things that fly. He lightened his tread. A noise echoed from behind a cement support column. Not just any noise, a cough. Bats don't cough. The elevator was close, so close. He froze, hand hovering over his gun. A shadowy figure teetered into the dim light. The stench of cheap gin stung worse than the cold. Spare a little change? The man slurred, holding out one hand. The other clutched a brown paper bag. How about I call you a cab instead? There's a shelter close by. You'll freeze out here tonight. Brennan eyed the man's tattered coat, two sizes too big. Despite his slurred speech, his eyes were clear and his chin displayed what looked to be only a day's worth of stubble. And he was wearing a pair of Air Jordans. Nah, man, I ain't going to no shelter. Forget about it. He stumbled toward the exit. Who do you work for? Brennan slid his gun out of its holster and held it by his side. It wasn't against the law to impersonate a drunk, but it sure was suspicious. The man stopped on the sidewalk outside the garage. Pig. He flipped Brennan the bird and took off on a dead run. His footsteps, remarkably steady for a drunk, vanished quickly. Hopefully karma was kind and had sent the jerk skidding across the ice on his ass. Or better yet, his face. The bat colony pulsed with agitation. It's Okay. Brennan said, unsure if he was talking to the bats or himself. He hustled to the elevator and jabbed the up button. By the time the metal doors closed, the fluttering had stopped. He sagged against the back wall. He was under surveillance. The question was, by whom? The floors ticked upward and so did his self-doubt. Maybe the bro was just a guy who held his alcohol well. Maybe he'd stolen those expensive sneakers. And maybe tacos were Polish and pizza was health food. The elevator stopped on the 13th floor. Brennan shivered as a frigid gust of air blasted him in the chest. He knew its source without looking. The locks on the double-hung window at the end of the hall were so cheap, the slightest vibration, a large truck idling outside, a car radio's throbbing bass caused the upper sash to slide down at least four inches. The landlord didn't care. Any criminal who scales 13 floors for a robbery deserves his haul. But the gap gave entry to a wide variety of undesirables, from rain to flies to the occasional bat. Today it welcomed a crow. Brennan and the bird considered each other from seven feet away. It sat outside his end unit apartment, picking at a leather-bound book propped against the door. He sighed. Did you get stuck in here? The crow's yellow-brown eyes stared dolefully. You found a way to break in, but you didn't think it through, did you? No escape plan. I thought you guys were supposed to be smart. Brennan sidled past the bird to the window. He raised the upper sash and twisted the lock tight. Then he opened the bottom pane as wide as possible. Here you go, back outside where you belong, Junior. The bird, more interested in plucking at the journal's decorative metal lock, ignored him. Another glacial gust ruffled Brennan's hair. Fine, stay there. You've got 30 minutes before I close it up for the night. Expecting the crow to fly away in a panic, he strode toward his door, and the bird. The crow stopped its plucking and skittered to the right, as if allowing Brennan clear passage. Eyes warily on the bird, Brennan pulled his keys from his pocket, accidentally flinging a quarter high into the air. It landed face up on the dirty brown carpet. The bird fluttered its wings, snatched the shiny object off the ground, and soared out the window into the blustery night. Brennan stared into the darkness until the keys in his hand grew bitter cold and his breath clouded the window with frost. He lowered the sash and twisted the lock with quiet determination. The overhead light at his back cast a shadow on the glass, a black figure with hollow orbs for eyes and no mouth. He raised his hand in a half-hearted wave and the shadow did the same. Sleet tapped at the glass like icy fingers on a vintage typewriter. Go inside. There's nothing to see here. But the words blurred in streams of melting ice, which slashed away at his shadow until nothing remained except tiny droplets clinging to the pane. A dull thud interrupted his stupor. He spun around, half expecting to see that the crow had somehow returned. Instead, the hefty journal had slid from its propped position against the door and landed flat on the ground. Brennan scooped it up, unlocked his apartment, and entered a room only marginally warmer than the hall. The ancient radiators clanged and hissed, their efforts doomed by a cantankerous thermostat that worked only half the time. No matter, a shot of scotch and the cold would disappear in a warm glow. It took him a while to find the bottle stashed away in the back of a top kitchen cupboard, far from his curious daughter's grabby hands. Four cut crystal tumblers, a wedding gift from happier days, sat beside it. He retrieved one and wiped the dust from the tall bottle. The scotch, a gift from his pop, was for medicinal purposes only. By now, the liquid was aged to amber perfection. His pop would approve. He plopped into his favorite recliner and sipped it a second shot, savoring its smoky flavor. The journal, Cassie's, he presumed, rested heavy in his lap. The smell of fine leather mingled with that of the scotch. He closed his eyes and inhaled through his nose, waiting for the warm glow in his gut to intensify into a mind-numbing burn. He should go to bed. Big day tomorrow. Confronting a crooked colleague was never easy. Confronting a crooked colleague supported by the mob could be fatal. The journal shifted with his legs and he stared at its finely tooled surface embossed with a trio of toga-clad women in classic Greek relief. The fates, muses, gods, or ghosts. Damned if he knew. He didn't believe in any of them. He flipped it over. The elaborate design repeated on the back. No curly Q hearts, no bold colors, not the sort of journal one would expect of an 18-year-old. Then again, Cassie, with her passion for unsolved murders and vintage photographs, was not your typical teen. Whether through old-fashioned detective work or bribery, she'd found out where he lived. The thought was vaguely disquieting. Given her macabre obsessions, he doubted her diary contained tales of first dates, young love gone awry, and angst over teenage acne. But what did he know? Elle hadn't made it past age five. The shimmering amber liquid trembled with his hand. He downed what little remained of his second shot and embraced the burn. Might as well take a peek while he had a decent buzz on. The leather cover creaked at his touch. The parchment-colored pages, thick and fine, whispered as he flipped to the first page bearing ink. Cassie's cursive script, elegant, spare, and so unlike the scribble he'd come to expect from people his age and younger, swam into view.
2: November 2nd. First journal entry. A single black-and-white photo can damage a man's mind if the image is powerful enough. A thousand can shred it beyond repair. That's what happened to Pap, I suppose. Why he simply stopped locking the photo room as if it no longer mattered. The damage to him was done. Mine was about to begin.
1: He blinked and settled into his chair. Nope, no teenage angst here. The empty glasses' crystal facets winked at him from the coffee table. He turned the page and cringed. Thank God for a full bottle of scotch. The alarm clock jangled, torturing Brennan's hungover brain. Six o'clock AM, ugh. Eyes shut against the harsh morning light he groped for his phone. It hit the floor with a thud. The blaring continued. He cursed, opened his eyes and winced. Poor decisions pay off poorly, his pop used to say, typically after losing an expensive bet. Finishing the scotch had been a piss poor decision. To aspirin in a shower did nothing to improve his mood, or the pounding in his head. He sure as hell hadn't planned to stay up most of the night reading Cassie's journal and case files. And as far as the scotch, when he hit the part about Cassie chatting with ghosts of pictures past, finishing the bottle seemed like the thing to do. A dozen more pages and another dawning realization reinforced his decision. It wasn't a diary. She'd written the journal specifically for him, started it the day her mother plunged down the stairs, Recorded the last entry yesterday, right before turning over the case files. Then she hand-delivered it to his door. He stumbled through his morning routine, donning the same crumpled pants he'd worn yesterday, and opting to use an electric shaver instead of his razor, thanks to his trembling hands. Too much booze, too little sleep, a shady colleague, an even shadier boss. A young girl obsessed with murder who thinks 80-year-old photos can talk. Just an ordinary day at the office. He tossed an extra scoop of dark roast into the stainless steel percolator he'd salvaged from his pop's house before the auction. As a child, the time it took to reach a languorous boil, when the first gentle breath of steam appeared in the plastic cap, was quality time with his pop, usually spent discussing the most recent Phillies game. As an adult, he'd carried on the tradition, minus the Phillies, with L., Now he simply paced the tiny kitchen and waited for the interminable hiss to become a rolling boil, signifying it was time to pour and go. The heavy percolator shuddered and a stream of coffee scalded his hand. A flurry of foul language followed. It was a good thing Elle wasn't here to hear about it. No, you should never say that, never. Coffee in hand, Brandon shrugged his jacket over one arm and headed for the front door, tripping over the open journal he'd tossed on the floor next to the chair. He stopped to retrieve it. The journal was evidence now, evidence of Cassie's state of mind. But it was hers, and she'd surely want it back. It weighed heavy in his hand. He hesitated, then quickly snapped photos of her dated entries with his phone. Hopefully he'd never have to use them. The morning traffic was stop and go. The giant thermos ran dry somewhere between vine and locust. He rushed into the precinct and made a beeline for the bathroom. As he emerged, a colleague's voice boomed from down the hall. Hey, Jimbo, you're here early. I didn't think you lab rat scrawled out of your dark rooms until at least noon. Jimbo. Jim Benino, Brandon ducked behind the bathroom door. Jim mumbled something about having a meeting with the captain and dark rooms being mostly obsolete, didn't you know? His footsteps faded into the chatter of the precinct's open workspace. A door slammed, its glass panels vibrating. Brennan peered around the corner and inched down the hall to the workspace's perimeter. Across the room, Jim, his back to the glass, sat in Captain Mattern's office. His hands gesticulated wildly as he and the captain carried on what appeared to be an animated conversation, at least on Jim's end. The captain had assumed her usual stance, half sitting on the edge of her desk, arms crossed, face a tight mask of disapproval. Brennan backed down the hall to the break room and swiped the time clock with his badge. A horde of co-workers milled about, jostling to swipe in on time. He casually acknowledged their pleasantries while considering his next move. As a rule, CSIs rarely appeared in the precinct. Rarely as in never. And at 8 o'clock a.m., he snorted and refilled his thermos from the already half-empty pot. Extraordinary. The situation, not the coffee. His cell signaled a text. He sipped the bitter brew and debated whether he should look. He wasn't prepared to talk to Jim or Captain Mattern yet, not without reviewing the photos from Aaron's case file. When accusing a colleague, there was no room for error or speculation, and speculation, specifically Pete's wild mob theories, was all Brennan had. Depending on what kind of facts he'd managed to cobble together, he might have to skip over Captain Mattern's head and go directly to internal affairs. He cringed at the thought. Right or wrong, the fallout would be nuclear. His phone buzzed again. He sighed and glanced at the screen. I need you at the house now. Pap fell down the stairs. Chapter 19 Brandon dialed Cassie en route to his car. She answered on the first ring. He slid into the driver's seat and cranked the ignition. I'm on my way. Did you call 911? He won't let me. I'm sorry. Her voice quavered. I didn't know what else to do. He exhaled with relief. Dolan was alive and barking orders, which counted for something. How bad is he hurt? I I don't know. He says he's okay, but he doesn't look okay. He's still lying on the stairs. I'm afraid to help him up. Don't. Don't move him. I'll be right there. Brennan clicked on his siren and did the Spruce Street slalom, weaving through traffic like a pro. He cut the siren a block from Cassie's house. During Aaron's wake, the tony neighborhood's cobblestone streets had bustled with life. Today, Dolan Mansion stood silent as a sentry, the stillness broken only by the deliberate sweep of the security cameras mounted high above the front door and upper story windows. Brandon gave a token knock and shook the handle. The heavy oak door creaked on its hinges, its lock not set. He charged through, taking the stairs two at a time. Like his granddaughter before him, Dolan lay on his back on the second story landing. Unlike Aaron, his skull was intact and he was anything but still. His rapid, raspy breath filled the staircase. Grimacing, he rolled from side to side, struggling to rise in the awkward, cramped space. Cassie knelt beside him, her hand pressed against his shoulder. She looked at Brennan, her green eyes wild with fear. Dolan stopped struggling and sagged onto the floor. He turned his head to stare at the detective's worn leather shoes. Detective Brennan, he coughed and his face blanched. What the hell are you doing here? Despite his obvious distress, his razor sharp gaze missed nothing. Brennan crouched beside him. Just stop by to check on Cassie, looks like I picked a good time. The old man's right leg lay twisted outward at an awkward angle. Cassie, do me a favor and go downstairs to wait for the ambulance so you can let them in. Cassie, her face taut, nodded and dashed down the stairs. Dolan closed his eyes. I don't need a goddamned ambulance. Help me up and I'll buy you a new pair of shoes. Brennan ignored his trembling outstretched hand and called dispatch. While giving his report, Brennan did a quick survey of Dolan's condition. In addition to the labored breathing and misshapen right leg, Leland sported a swollen, purple lump below his right eye. His pajama top hung in disarray, with several snaps undone. Brandon frowned and gently tugged one flannel lapel to the side to expose Dolan's chest. Two cherry red burns, just beginning to blister, covered his rib cage. With all due respect, Mr. Dolan, you do need an ambulance. You may have broken your hip. He paused. What happened? The old man opened his milky eyes. I tripped over my walker and fell down the stairs. Is that what you told Cassie? Yes. You and I both know that story's not true. She didn't believe me either. Smart girl, my little peach. She didn't say as much, but I saw her look up the stairs for my walker. Which I suspect is in your bedroom. You suspect right. Dolan coughed again and his face contorted with pain. I don't know what you want me to say. I'm old. Old people fall. The burns on your chest. I've seen similar marks before. Dolan's writhing stopped and his expression stiffened. If it weren't for the rapid rise and fall of his chest, Brennan would have thought the old man had died. Where? The word, soft as a sigh, whistled through Dolan's pursed blue lips. It's your granddaughter's autopsy. Dolan's lower jaw quivered. Outside, a siren wailed, becoming progressively louder. Inside, the foyer's grandfather clock ticked in time with Dolan's harsh breath. Brennan, his feet tingling from crouching too long, shifted his weight. What happened here, Mr. Dolan? I can't help you if you don't tell me the truth. The old man grabbed Brennan's forearm and, with surprising strength, tugged him off balance. He landed on his hands and knees, his ear inches from Dolan's mouth. Watch over Cassie, get her out of this house. Dolan gasped for breath, his voice a hoarse whisper. Don't let them hurt her, she already has. Has what? Brennan pried the old man's bony fingers from around his forearm. Who are you afraid of, Mr. Dolan? Beck McConnell and his clan, La Familia? The old man groaned. Who, Leland? The siren stopped screeching. A gust of cold air rushed up the staircase. A metal gurney's clatter mingled with muted voices. Do you hear that? Dolan's ashen cheeks slackened. The ambulance is here. Brandon passed his fingers to the old man's wrist, monitoring his thready pulse. No, it sounds like music, piano music. Dolan turned his head to gaze up the stairs. His eyelids drifted shut. It's haunting, don't you think? Cassie insisted upon riding in the ambulance with her pap. With his siren blaring, Brynn entailed them to Jefferson Hospital and followed behind the gurney as they whisked Dolan through the ER's automatic doors. Dolan's legend ensured exemplary attention and service. Within two hours, he'd been evaluated, diagnosed with a broken right hip, and scheduled for surgery later that day to have the pieces pinned into place. Throughout the ordeal, Cassie stoically held her pap's hand. After the morphine stole his coherence, she signed the surgical consent, functioning as his representative, as Dolan had designated upon admission. They wheeled him to the O.R. shortly after noon. By then, Brandon's stomach burned from too much coffee and no food. He looked at Cassie's pale, drawn face and forced a smile. It's gonna take a while, they said. How about we get some lunch? Before she could answer, the room's curtain fluttered aside. Ryan McConnell, his face tense with barely contained rage, charged in. He stopped an arm's length from Cassie. Do you want to know how I found out about your pap's admission? I saw his name on the OR schedule, that's how. Do you have any idea how embarrassing that was? He turned his anger on Brennan. Why wasn't I notified, and what the hell are you doing here? The corner of Brennan's mouth twitched. You're the second person today to ask me that question. Cassie stood. You weren't notified because Pap made me his emergency contact. He clearly stated that even though you work here, you're not allowed to access his medical information. He has that right, he says. Ryan's face flushed. You're not fit to be his legal representative. I'm 18. That makes me legal, right, Detective Brennan? Brennan suppressed a grin. Correct. I'm afraid, Dr. McConnell, that Leland Dolan, being of sound mind, can make any adult his emergency contact and give them medical power of attorney. As far as being notified, the HIPAA state, I'm well versed in the HIPAA detective. Ryan pointed at Brennan. You and I need to talk. He turned his back and stalked out the door. Brennan shot Cassie a reassuring smile. I'll be right back. Don't go to lunch without me. He followed Ryan down the hall to an empty triage room. Ryan slammed the door behind them. What happened? Your grandfather-in-law fell down the steps and broke his hip. How? He told me he'd tripped over his walker. Ryan, his white lab coat fluttering around his hips, paced the small room. Do you believe him? Is there a reason I shouldn't? Don't you think it's a little odd that he too fell down the stairs so soon after Aaron's accident? No other than your wife and mistress dying within two weeks of each other. Ryan abruptly stopped pacing. I hadn't seen Amber since the wake. Our relationship was over. Uh Uh-huh. And Mr. Dolan was used to having Aaron there to help him get dressed and serve his breakfast. Without her assistance, he was on his... Cassie was home. Ryan's eyes narrowed. She was home the day Aaron died too. No, she was not home the day her mother died. I saw her at the library. It's walking distance from the house. Maybe you were meant to see her at the library. That's ridiculous. I hadn't even been assigned the case yet. Brandon's eyes narrowed. What are you implying, Dr. McConnell? Are you accusing your own daughter of murder? Every murderer has a father, detective. You don't say. And here I thought they just fell from the sky like acid rain. Cassie is mentally unstable. Surely she's told you by now about her imaginary friends. She'll tell anyone who will listen. Brennan remained silent. She hears voices, detective. Talks to people who aren't there. Is obsessed with murder. Gets violent when crossed. Suffers blackouts that go beyond her seizure disorder. She probably has schizophrenia or at least a schizoaffective disorder. Brennan frowned. She gets violent in what way? Ryan's lips curled in a humorless smile. Sorry, HIPAA laws, you know. They're even stricter when it comes to a patient's mental health history and they also don't apply when dealing with law enforcement. Your daughter's mental illness or lack thereof has a direct bearing on my investigation. Who diagnosed her? You? I thought you were a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. My medical degree makes me more of a psychiatrist than your badge does. You don't think Aaron and I sought help? Cassie has seen the best money can buy. Neurologists, neuropsychologists, psychiatrists, you name it. She's run through the entire alphabet of medications. They keep her calm at best. I needed, still need, to quiet their voices. Brandon frowned as he recalled a passage from Cassie's journal. She seems calm to me. You're not around her 24-7. She gets up in the middle of the night and pounds on the piano. The same dozen notes over and over. Locks herself in the music room for no reason. Stares into space for hours like she's channeling God or something. Leland's not much better. The bastard's losing his mind. Ryan ran a hand through his wavy hair. Look, my wife fell down the stairs. Your poking around is not going to bring her back. All it's going to do is feed into Cassie's psychosis and Leland's hatred of everything to do with a McConnell name. You seem like a decent man. If you want what's best for Cassie and your career, just let it go. Are you threatening me, Dr. McConnell? Ryan opened the door. Come near me again and my family's lawyer will be asking you that same question. One more thing then before you go. Brennan rummaged in his pocket and pulled out the photo of the marks on Aaron's chest. He handed it to Ryan. The coroner found these on Aaron's chest and back. He says they're burns. I noticed similar marks on Mr. Dolan's chest today. I also found a defibrillator marked as hospital property in your closet. Care to explain? The hospital sold the old AEDs when they updated to new ones. I bought one. Never had to use it, thank God. You can interrogate it if you like. It has a memory card that records every time it's used and stores the details of a resuscitation. I can access my credit card receipt online, too, if you need it. Then how do you explain the burns? The coroner says they were deep. They ran all the way through your wife's body. Any theories? Ryan held the photo under the bright, sterile light of a gooseneck lamp. He shook his head slowly. No. His face clouded with confusion. Burns, no. He thrust the photo back into Brennan's hands. I have no idea. It doesn't matter. She's gone. Now let the dead rest in peace. Chapter 20 Brennan watched Ryan McConnell storm down the gleaming corridor and disappear into the room where they left Cassie waiting. The father-daughter huddle lasted less than a minute. They exited together. Ryan scowled when he caught sight of Brennan loitering outside the triage room. The surgeon steered Cassie toward the ER's employee exit. After a final pointed look over his shoulder, Ryan huffed away, presumably to finish whatever super important doctorly work he'd been doing before Dolan's inconvenient injury dared to interrupt. Brennan's phone buzzed. He wasn't surprised. Meet me outside the main entrance. He followed the red exit signs to the sliding glass door. Cassie, dressed in a cable-knit sweater and corduroy jeans, stood shivering in the brisk air. Coat? Brennan asked. I forgot to grab one. Too much drama. He shrugged his off and held it out. You okay? She slung it over her slim shoulders. Yeah, thanks. No matter what my father said, I want to be here when Pap comes out of surgery. I don't want him to wake up alone. Despite the warm jacket, she shivered again. If he wakes up. His breathing is terrible. The orthopedist told me Pap's bad lungs plus his age make him a high-risk surgery. The orthopedist clearly doesn't know the legendary Leland Dolan. If anyone can pull through a situation like this, he can. He flashed a wry grin. Come on, let's get some lunch before I get hangry. The city blocks surrounding the hospital hosted dozens of eateries, ranging from tiny falafel shops to chic bistros. They settled on a homey Italian cafe. Brennan picked a spot in the corner near the emergency exit, bypassing two closer empty tables. Cassie raised an eyebrow. Habit, he shrugged. Any cop worth his badge would never sit with his back to the front door. She perched daintily on the wooden seat inside. It's been so long since I've been in a restaurant. She smiled at the rustic old world decor. All we need is a strolling accordion player. Your parents never took you out to eat? No, she averted her eyes. They were afraid I'd embarrass them. Why, you eat with your feet or something? She burst out laughing. How'd you know? Lucky guess. He studied her while she perused the menu. Dark circles under her eyes marred her porcelain skin, and both hands shook with a fine, barely perceptible tremor. Below her thumb on her left inner wrist, a well-heeled scar pulsed with each beat of her heart. She lowered the menu at the waitress's approach and caught him staring. Cassie tugged her sleeve over her wrist. I'll have a bowl of the pasti fagioli and a glass of water, please. No straw. Brennan handed the waitress his menu. And I'll have a stromboli and an iced tea. No straw for me either, save the sea turtles. The waitress, white hair teased higher than a cloud of meringue, tucked the straws into her apron and strolled away. Cassie fidgeted in her chair. Did you read my journal? Yes, it's in my car. Don't let me forget to give it back to you. Brandon bobbed his head toward her scarred wrist. What happened? Not what you think. I have a collection of scars from my past seizures. I've fallen bang into things. Sometimes those things are sharp. You should know. You saw me have one. That I did. The waitress slid their drinks onto the table. Brandon ripped open a packet of sugar and dumped it in his tea. You handle today like a champ. I know you're an adult, but will you be okay at home alone? Your pap will probably be in the hospital for a few days, and I imagine your father works long hours. Cassie snorted. My father works just enough to keep up appearances and have some spending money to blow on his man toys, golf, gadgets, and girlfriends. Yeah, about that. He softened his tone. Amber's dead. Father already told me. I know she'd tutored you for years. So, what's your point? Okay, then. Brandon hid his surprise by stirring the sugar into his tea, swirling the ice until it tinkled in the tall glass. He expected at least a titch of sadness. Clearly, he expected too much. As I was saying, Pap's money pays for everything else. My mother's job was to manage the household and budget, although Pap still oversaw everything having to do with his fortune. Says running the numbers keeps his mind sharp. He had a hard time adjusting when he sold his empire in his mid-70s. He didn't retire until after I was born. She stopped abruptly. I'm babbling, aren't I? My father would be furious if he knew I was telling you this, which is why I asked if you were going to be okay at home. You two don't seem to have the best relationship. We hate each other. Brennan raised an eyebrow. Cassie's emotional response was typical of the sullen teens he frequently encountered in his line of work, but until now she demonstrated composure beyond her years. He set a spoon on the table. Okay, you hate each other. The way I see it, your pap is the buffer and he's in the hospital. Her eyes glinted. I don't need a buffer. The waitress returned, balancing a tray laden with food. She carefully set Cassie's soup on the table. A loud crash from the kitchen turned everyone's heads. She plopped Brennan's overstuffed stromboling onto the checkered tablecloth and yelling in Italian hurried back to the kitchen. Cassie spoke over the din. Isolation fosters self reliance. I've been alone since age 12 when my parents pulled me out of school. I had my parents, Pap and Amber. That's it. She stirred her hot soup daintily, releasing a billow of steam. My developmental circle of influence, as my child psychiatrist called it, I think he found it a bit dysfunctional. I bet he did. Brennan carved himself a generous hunk of strawberry. What about Ruth? You forgot about her. She was there too, according to your journal. Cassie stopped stirring. He shoved the chunk of bully in his mouth and allowed the silence to linger, gauging her reaction with interest. She stared at the steaming liquid in front of her. Ruth would never allow me to forget. She lowered her voice. Do you believe me? Which part? That the photos talk to me? That their people tell me their stories? No. Cassie closed her eyes. Not yet. Brennan paused to wipe a blob of sauce from his chin, and Cassie's eyes flew open. Here's what I learned from reviewing the case files and your journal. You're a talented, self-taught investigator with meticulous attention to detail who was able to recreate and solve cold cases based on nothing more than faded photographs with dates scribbled on the back. You believe you get intel from the people pictured, primarily a young murderess named Ruth, who sounds like a charming piece of work, by the way. Ruth is my friend. She tells me the truth. I think you figure out the truth on your own. You don't give yourself enough credit. Cassie shook her head. No, it's not just me. I couldn't do it alone. I was hoping... Her voice cracked. I'd hoped you'd be the one who believed me. It's hard for me to talk about it. That's why I wrote the journal instead. Everyone else I've told thinks I'm crazy. They finished their meal in silence. Cassie, her expression distant, sipped her soup half-heartedly. Brennan, however, thoroughly enjoyed his strong bully, swirling the last bit of dough around his plate to catch any remaining smears of sauce. He crumpled his napkin and tossed it next to his empty plate. You want dessert or are you done? Are you sure you don't want to lick your plate first? Ben grinned. I appreciate good food, but I'm no savage. My pop taught me some manners. She stood. I'm done then. I should head back to the hospital to wait for Pap. Outside the cozy bistro, the cold air burned like a slap in the face. Cassie took a shuddering breath and turned to face Brennan. What would it take for you to believe me? Cassie, no really. I've got four unsolved murders I need your help with, remember? I only gave you two of those files. And I only read one, Ruth's, that was enough. They're important to me. If we're going to work them together, we need to trust each other. Brennan sighed a plume of frosty breath. A trio of intrepid pigeons pecked the concrete at his feet, seeking a handout. He stomped and they jittered away. The pin in his pants pocket jabbed his thigh. L. He pushed the image of her smiling face out of his mind and shivered. Cassie still had his coat and the air felt way colder than when they'd left the hospital. He shoved his hands in his pockets, fingered the icy metallic disc, and walked toward the corner. She matched his pace. The pedestrian walk light disappeared when they reached the intersection. She stopped on the curb. Well, detective, I never said I would work with you on those cold cases. I have your mother's investigation to finish, and Captain Mattern is not a patient woman. And since we're on the subject of trust, how'd you find out where I live? Cassie looked at the gray sky, the traffic, the storefronts, everywhere but his face. I'd rather not say. Trust is a two-way street. She hesitated, dragging her toe across the concrete and random lines. My father sometimes does his charting from home on the computer. I know his password. I logged in, accessed your daughter's medical record, and found your address there. She stared at her sneaker-clad feet. I'm sorry, I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. Wrong and illegal and clever, Brennan sighed. Don't show up at my apartment again. If anyone sees you, I could lose my job. I said I was sorry. She lowered her voice. Ruth was right. She said I shouldn't tell you anything. Shouldn't bring an outsider into our business. Ah, yes, good old Ruth, our favorite serial husband killer. Who does Ruth say murdered your mother? I told you that in my journal. She says my father did it. Yeah, well, Amber told me your pap did it. Your father says it was you. Her brittle laugh triggered furtive glances from passersby. I'm not surprised. I sometimes think he's afraid of me. I know the seizures terrified my mother, and after I told my parents about the voices, did he tell you they had me exorcised? A full-blown Catholic exorcism, for God's sake. As if the Dolans and the McConnells were your typical devout Irish families not. The light changed and they hurried through the intersection. The crowd thinned when they rounded the corner toward the hospital. Cassie stopped in the middle of the sidewalk, seemingly oblivious to the pedestrians streaming past. The truth is it's not God or the devil or my seizures. It's not the meds or mental illness. This is who I am. It's like my super recognizer ability, a curse or a gift, depending on the day, the need, and my mood. On a good day, those voices are my friends. But not every day is a good day, Brennan pointed out, gently pulling her to the side of the walk. No, an ambulance screamed by, its desperation reflected in Cassie's bleak eyes. Sometimes if I'm lonely and I need to talk, I don't take my medicines. Their voices are clear then, otherwise they sound distant, like they've traveled through a pond of murky water. The desperation in her voice grew sharper. Other people hear them too, I'm sure of it, I can't be the only one. Like schizophrenics, what if the things they see and hear are real? I think humans can be tuned to different frequencies. Like other animals, they can see infrared and ultraviolet light or hear things we can't. An amber-eyed cat yelled from a side street and darted across their path as if the devil had its tail. A huge crow swooped behind, cawing its displeasure. Cassie jumped. See? Cats, crows, the schizophrenics, and me. The cat skirted a garbage bin and dashed across the street. As if aware of their gaze, it stopped and hissed before disappearing into the shadows of a narrow alley. A flock of panicked doves flew to the safety of the nearest roof, leaving the crow as the alley's sole guardian. It perched on a pile of wooden pallets and watched Brennan and Cassie as they resumed their walk down the street. Something fluttered from behind and Brennan glanced over his shoulder. The crow was gone. I don't know about alley cats and crows, but we colored a schizza once, my old partner and I. Dude was running down broad and nothing but a pair of boots. Thought Tom, my partner, was a vampire. Tried to impale him with a hockey stick. I'm pretty sure whatever frequency he was tuned to wasn't real. Yeah, how well did you know your partner? Cassie's cheek dimpled with a wry grin and he laughed. Well enough to know he didn't drink blood. Now booze, that's a whole other story. His car was parked next to the ambulance bay in a spot reserved for law enforcement. He grabbed her journal off the passenger seat and handed it to her. She tucked it silently beneath her arm. They stopped short of the hospital's main entrance to avoid triggering the sliding glass doors. A handful of visitors passed in and out, some carrying flowers, books, and other gifts to make their loved one's stays marginally more pleasant. The brief moment of levity drowned in a melancholic wave. His old partner had died here shortly after retirement. So had L. In the moments before his world collapsed, Brennan had been a happy husband, a doting father, and a detective in his prime. He'd failed to appreciate a single damned day of it. This case was supposed to, how had Pete put it, give him his mojo back. Instead, he was ass-deep in the McConnells' family dirty laundry with no conclusions in sight. Detective? Detective? Cassie, her head cocked, was staring at his face. Sorry, zoned out for a minute. I know the feeling. Brandon nodded absently. Tell your pap I wish him a speedy recovery. Maybe I'll swing by to talk to him sometime during his stay. Text me if you need anything, okay? Okay. Cassie shrugged off his coat and held it out for him. You might need this. I'll steal my father's from the doctor's lounge. You'll borrow it. That's what I said. The sliding doors whooshed open, releasing a burst of heat. I'm not giving up, you know. I solved six cases on my own already. I will solve those last four cases eventually with or without your help. I believe you. That's a start. Chapter 21 The evidence collection clerk, a short, plump lady who cracked her gum with the ferocity of an insolent teenager, was displeased. She hefted herself off the stool and slammed her magazine onto the counter. Third time today, she said as she huffed behind the locked bulletproof partition to retrieve Amber Cervello's personal effects. You know they take pictures of this stuff for the case file, right? Of course I do, Stella, Brennan said in his most conciliatory voice. But then I wouldn't get to see your smiling face. Just sign in, will ya? Pen in hand, he flipped the logbook open. When Stella donned a pair of nitrile gloves and unbagged the evidence for display, he scanned through the day's previous entries. His lips pursed in a silent whistle. Stella, her task completed, tapped her foot and stared longingly at the gossip mag splayed on the counter. You forget your name or what? I bet you didn't ask the captain that question. Brandon added his scrawled signature below Pete's and Captain Mattern's. You know I didn't. She's not famous for her sense of humor, am I right? You most certainly are, Stella. Brennan studied the paltry display. A thin gold toe ring, a scratched, faceted blue stone ring, which even he could tell was fake, and a gold heart necklace with a tiny embedded diamond. Anything written on the necklace? You mean like an inscription? Nah, Captain asked the same thing. Great minds think alike, I guess. I guess. I was kind of surprised to see her, to tell you the truth. She hasn't worked the beat in years. Came in with a big guy in a super nice suit, complete with a green silk handkerchief. Snazzier than any cop I know. Must be onto something special. Stella eagerly leaned over the counter, her eyes begging him to drop even the smallest morsel of gossip. Beck McConnell. He'd bet his badge on it. Brennan shrugged. No idea. Maybe she just got tired of sitting behind her glass walls. Stella's face fell. Maybe. She gathered the jewelry and tossed each piece into individual evidence bags. We good here? Yes, Stella, we're good. Brennan stared at his ancient monitor and pounded the enter button for what seemed like the thousandth time. If there's a modern life lesson that trumps all the rest, it's that computers freeze when needed the most like when a case report is due in three days and the boss is buzzing around her office like a hornet on meth. Detective Tan sat at the desk to his right. She rolled her office chair next to Brennan's and shook her head. The black screen of death, that's bad. Did you try restarting it? Yes, I tried restarting it. Brennan tossed his pen on the desk and his colleague rolled away. He glared across the room at the captain, cell phone pressed to her ear, pacing her glass-enclosed office. They needed to have a heart-to-heart, but not before he compared what he'd seen in evidence collection to Jim's official photos from the scene, which at this rate might be never. The black screen flickered and the hard drive roared to life. Finally. A few keystrokes later, his suspicions were confirmed. Like Aaron's neck, Amber's broken fingers were bare, save the fake sapphire ring, The bling was gone, stripped by Jim's expert editing. Brennan leaned back in his chair and sipped his tepid hours-old coffee. A spark of anger kindled, souring his stomach, stealing from the dead. Jesus. Pete was right. He'd seen Amber's rings, several thousand dollars worth with his own eyes. Whatever the mob paid, it was apparently not enough. Not enough for Jim, anyway. His phone rang, the tone signaling a call from Pete. Brennan answered in a low voice. It's Brennan. Did you forget our run at four? Today's the day. We're getting back into shape, remember? The only shape Pete, lover of all donuts cared about, was round with a hole in the middle. Pete did not run and never would run unless chasing a truck full of Krispy creams. Maybe not even then. Brennan glanced at the clock. 4.05. Yeah, sorry about that. I got caught up in something. I gotta get changed. Where are we meeting again? Penn's Landing. Right. See you in twenty. He gulped the last swig of bitter coffee and grimaced. No time to go home and change. This ought to be good, especially since he was wearing a shirt and tie. He jogged down the stairs to the basement. The precinct's locker room had been repainted a sunny yellow since the last time Brennan worked out, and the fumes added to the noxious odor. He rubbed his nose. Sweat, chlorine, and now volatile organic compounds, all trapped in a humid, windowless environment utilizing an HVAC system from the 1930s. A set of swinging double doors, damp with condensation, led to the in-ground pool. He peeked through. The water trembled constantly, agitated by the traffic from the streets above. Original to the building, the pool was considered state-of-the-art in its day he shuddered to think what life forms lurked in its outdated filtration system. He blew the dust off the combination lock, securing his locker and fumbled with the code. The series of numbers, a combination of L's and Julia's birthdays, was his clever way of remembering important dates. Daily reinforcement back when he used to swim with Jim, who ragged him about the need to stay fit. He'd missed his wife's birthday once. Big mistake. Never wanted to live through that again. He changed the combination on his lock the day after. The lock clicked. He tugged on the rusty metal door. It shuttered open, releasing a blast of stale odors. He held his breath and took inventory. Sneakers, crusty socks, a ratty police department tee, and a pair of shorts, all of which should have been laundered long ago. For today they'd have to do. He changed quickly before he had time to ponder what might be living in his sneakers. His wife and daughter smiled at him from the photo taped inside the metal door. Below it hung one of Elle's crayon masterpieces, an intersection of black squiggly lines coated with purple glitter glue stick. Her friend, the crow. Most little girls drew ponies and rainbows. Not Elle. He peeled the drawing off the locker door, folded it into his pants pocket next to the pin, and carried his wadded-up clothing with him to the car. By the time he and Pete finished their jog, it would be quitting time. Besides, the basement, dimly lit by flickering overhead bulbs and old-fashioned wall sconces, was creepy as hell at night, especially the pool. The Delaware Riverfront was a short drive down Chestnut. Brennan found Pete sitting on a bench near the 12-foot-high Irish Memorial to and Gortamore, the Great Hunger. The metal sculpture glowed in the shadowy light of the setting sun. Haunting, hollowed-eyed faces cast in stark relief, desperation etched in bronze. Gaunt with starvation, these men, women, and children had escaped Ireland's potato famine by making the perilous journey across the Atlantic to the ports of Philadelphia. The statue was more than a memorial. It was a warning. Remember the hunger. Starvation is only ever a blight away. A little girl clung to her mother, bronze cheek pressed against bronze cheek. Brandon tore his gaze from the sculpture's gleaming surface. Shouldn't you be stretching? He eyed Pete's terry sweatband and too tight bicycle shorts. The 80s called, they want their spandex back. Funny, at least I don't reek. You smell worse than my clients. Clients, your clients are dead. Exactly, and some of them have been for weeks. Make sure you stay downwind. Pete looked over his shoulder. Let's walk. Brennan matched Pete's surprisingly brisk pace. What's this about, Pete? Someone was kind enough to send me an old-fashioned note today. Found it lying on my keyboard. The computer is totally fried, by the way, when I got back from lunch. He unzipped his teal fanny pack and removed a piece of paper. I'll unfold it and hold it up for you to read. It already has my prints on it, unfortunately. I picked it up with my bare hands, not knowing it would turn out to be so, um, relevant. The paper was standard white printer stock with eight words typed in a large, bold font. Let it go. Regret like death is permanent. Brennan stared at the neatly centered words. Relevant doesn't begin to cover it, Pete. You've been threatened. We've been threatened, I'm afraid. Pete dipped his fingers inside the nylon fanny pack and removed a plastic sandwich bag, which he held to the light. A shiny object winked back. After reading the letter, I was smart enough to don gloves. Brennan gasped, and his hand automatically went to his hip. The metal pin, L's pin, was identical to the one stuffed in the pocket of his dress pants tossed on the back seat of his car. Pete, his expression solemn, nodded. I know. We're in deep, my friend. I'm so sorry I dragged you into this. I should have gone straight to internal affairs, then washed my hands of the whole thing. Yet you visited evidence collection earlier this morning. Pete winced. I know, I know. First time ever. Had no idea you had to sign in. Stupid. But if I would have turned tail and left, I'm sure that nosy desk clerk would have been suspicious. Stella does have a nose for gossip. Seriously, Pete, I know I complimented your investigative prowess, But you need to stay in your lane. Leave the detective work to me or you're liable to end up deader than your clients. Deader is not a word. We're not doing this right now, you know what I mean. I do, I do. Pete fussed with his sweatband. I went because I needed validation. I had to see for myself that this wasn't some sort of paranoid conspiracy theory I'd built in my head. That I'm not crazy. That little love note is all the validation you need. Footsteps pounded the pavement behind them. Pete and Brennan jumped aside to allow a solitary runner to sprint past, her hand raised in a friendly wave. Brennan eyed her warily until she disappeared into the horizon. He took a deep breath. Okay, let's back up here. You said you found the letter on your keyboard when you got back from lunch. What about your secretary? What's her name again? Joan, also at lunch. You have to be buzzed into the morgue. Unless you have an employee badge with a magnetic stripe on the back to unlock the door, the reader's outside on the wall. You know, you've used it before. Your secretary usually beats me to it. How many people have access? More than you'd think. CD employees across multiple departments, which include several satellite buildings, use the same badge reader. We're talking hundreds of people. Besides, someone could have easily stolen one. People leave them sitting around all the time. I know I've been guilty of that. Badge readers keep a log for at least 24 hours, and some have programs that download the data to a server for indefinite storage. I can ask IT to query it. Brennan made a mental note to also check with the Human Resources Department for anyone reporting a lost or stolen badge. You said your computer was fried. What exactly does that mean? According to the help desk, it means, and I quote, catastrophic hard drive failure, files unrecoverable, they essentially shrugged their shoulders and said it wasn't surprising considering its age. But here's the kicker. All the autopsy reports I filed in the past eight days aren't in the main server's database either. IT said I must have forgotten to back them up, which is a crock of shit. They auto-populate into the cloud at the end of each workday. I know I look like an old fart, but I'm not as techno-dumb as they think. Brennan's heart sank. Eight days was just enough time to include both Aaron McConnell's and Amber Cervello's files. A long-haired teen on a skateboard weaved by. He grinned and gave Pete a double thumbs up. Nice fanny pack, dude. Pete flipped him the bird and carefully deposited the letter and bag back in the pack. Will the pin help narrow down the list of suspects? I remember you handing them out a while ago when... When... When Elle was getting her chemo. Nope. We ordered 300 of them. The hospital employees and pretty much every cop in the precinct got one. You know, Team L. He made air quotes, for all the good it did. Pete stared at the ground. Brennan ran a hand through his hair. Sorry, that sounded harsh. Julie and I appreciated all the support, we really did. And I know it gave Elle a thrill to see people wearing her pin. I just didn't expect to keep seeing them for months after she died. They're popping up everywhere, it seems. Laughter floated through the crisp air. A group of chatty teens rounded a band in the river walk ahead. Brennan spun on his heel. We should head back. Pete nodded and picked up the pace. What comes next? For you, nothing. Go about your business as usual. Exercise common sense precautions. Lock your doors, maybe get some pepper spray. As for me, I've got some good old-fashioned detective work to do. Color laser printers use embedded metadata. Little yellow dots that code the time, date, and often the printer's serial number. I'll follow up on the badge reader and send your note. He held out his hand. To processing for prints and metadata analysis. Now, They stopped where they'd begun at a bench in front of the Irish monument. It's evidence, Pete. I'm out. I know how to heed a warning. He ran a palm over his sweaty forehead. I have eight days of autopsy reports to redo and file. Aaron McConnell's new finalized report will list her cause of death as traumatic brain injury due to a mechanical fall. Accidental period. No hedging. And Jim can keep stealing all the Trinkets his little heart desires. The dead don't care. Pete, one of us still has a family, Dan. Brennan jerked to a stop. The mournful blast from a river's barge horn fractured the long silence. Pete averted his eyes. Look, I'm sorry. Sorry for everything. Lord knows I want to see Jim punished, but this can't go any further. And I'd appreciate you not getting us both killed. He took off in an actual jog, huffing and puffing to his drab beige minivan parked a half block down the street. The vehicle merged into front street traffic and disappeared. The chilly breeze off the river ruffled Brennan's hair. He shivered, suddenly cold in his thin t-shirt and crusty shorts. He returned to his car and tried to organize his muddled thoughts using a technique he learned in therapy. Create a mental checklist. Number one, he couldn't let this go. Hard stop. Number two, he had a report due in a little over 48 hours. What he said in that report could impact his and Pete's careers and their lives. Number three, he couldn't rely on Pete to back him up. He couldn't blame him. They'd both seen what the mob did to Amber. He started the car, gripped the steering wheel, and stared at the windshield at a sheet of newspaper fluttering down the sidewalk. Driven by the November wind, it swirled around pedestrian legs until a man in a long wool coat stomped it to the ground. Now that Brennan knew what he couldn't do, he had one hard question yet to answer. Could he live with himself if the outcome turned bad? Was proving Jim's guilt worth Pete's life? He closed his eyes. Images from crime scenes past, each more graphic than the last, flashed through his mind. Bile burnt the back of his throat. Twenty years of work, most of it spent in homicide, had hardened his soul. But if there's one thing he learned from losing L, it's that death is different when it's one of your own. When you're the one who has to tell the family, write the eulogy, attend the funeral. He sat in the idling car until the windows steamed over and he was forced to turn on the defroster. As the windshield cleared, so did his mind. Aaron and Amber's deaths, along with their missing jewelry, were inherently connected in some obscure, convoluted way, but his report didn't have to say so. Amber's case wasn't his. Jim's thievery predated Aaron. The mob was the common thread and they fell under the organized crime unit's jurisdiction, or depending on how high up the food chain the connection went, to internal affairs. A brief generic report listing Aaron's death as suspicious, but with inconclusive evidence could buy him time. Captain Mattern would shelve the case for sure, particularly with a normal autopsy. But a cold case could be reopened, and he could amend his report later, after he had developed a plan on how to investigate further without endangering Pete. He'd amassed a lot of contacts over the past twenty years. Someone would be willing to help. It would have to be on his own dime and time, off the record, on the QT. But he'd expose the corruption, the rot within their ranks. The truth would come out eventually. Until then, he'd still have his integrity, if not his reputation. He drove home on autopilot. His apartment building's underground parking deck only had one elevator, and it moved slower than Leland Dolan. Tonight, it wasn't moving at all. Brennan pressed the button repeatedly, but to no avail. No light. No sound of gears and cables lurching into motion. No nothing. With a heavy sigh, he tucked the bundle of dress clothes under his arm and tugged on the stairwell door. It creaked open, releasing a swirl of dust. The peeling green paint, flickering lights and crumbling cement steps, spoke of a building in decline, left to decay in favor of its younger and flashier counterpart across the street. But the rent was cheap and he had no one left to impress. Thirteen flights. He chugged ten, walked three, and cursed them all. Sweaty and gasping for breath, he exited the stairwell and fumbled for his keys. He used to run those stairs. He had to get back into shape. Tomorrow. He'd start tomorrow. At the far end of the hallway, the elevator dinged. He stared over his right shoulder. The door slid open. No one got out. To his left, the window's upper sash dropped open with a bang. A gust of frigid air blasted through the narrow corridor a glossy black feather floated to the floor. His keys swayed in the lock, their delicate jingle overpowered by the sound of Brennan's ragged breath. The elevator door slid shut and the numbers dropped one by one as it trundled back to the ground level. He opened the door to his apartment and tossed his clothes inside. Then he strode to the end of the hall and closed the window, securing the faulty latch as he'd done yesterday. Or so he thought. The feather, black with a faint purple iridescence, shimmered against the dull brown carpet. He stooped to retrieve the quill, twirling and brushing its downy fluff with his calloused fingers. It was perfect, the sort of treasure that would have made El squeal with delight. Another gift from her friend, the crow. Maybe the bird didn't realize she was gone. Or perhaps it knew and felt sorry for him. He scowled and shook his head. He drank too much and slept too little last night, and today, well, today had been a cluster from the get-go. But Jesus, he was losing his damned mind, pitied by a stupid bird. How pathetic can one get? He locked the door behind him and peeled off his crusty clothes. A hot shower washed the filth away. Clad in a clean pair of sweatpants and a flyer's tee, he emerged from his bedroom refreshed and hungry for a good meal. He glanced in his barren fridge. Frozen pot pie and beer. Maybe he should order Chinese instead. His stomach grumbled at the thought of waiting for delivery. Pot pie it was then. While the microwave worked its magic, he dialed the precinct's IT hotline. After a four-minute hold, his call was answered by a bored tech with a North Jersey accent and an attitude to match. The tech yawned. You know, we have staffed after five o'clock. Night shift only handles urgent requests. Brennan, phone-tucked under his ear, reached into the fridge for the last lonely bottle of beer. This is an urgent request. Yeah, that's what they all say. Did you place an electronic work order? No, I did not place a work order. You need to place a work order. The cap flew off the bottle and bounced into the sink and down the drain. Brennan cursed under his breath. I don't think that would be in either of our best interests. Say again? Due to the sensitive nature of the inquiry, you can either give the info to me now real quiet-like, or I can have Internal Affairs pay a much louder visit. The microwave dinged. The tech cleared his throat. What do you need? The badge reader outside the morgue. I needed it interrogated. What time frame? Today between late morning and mid-afternoon. Oh. The relief in the tech's voice was audible. The keyboard clacked a staccato rhythm. Got it right here. Quick and easy. Three names. Skip, Peter, and Joan, who's the third? Brennan removed the steaming hot pot pie from the microwave and sniffed appreciatively. Tom. Tom Marvin. Do you know him? Brennan dropped the dish onto the table. The pot pie's fragile center crust deflated, sinking into a pool of peas and gravy. That has to be a mistake. Check again. I don't need a check again. The scanners don't make mistakes. Yeah? Well, I know Tom Marvin. He was my partner, and he's been stone cold dead for over a year.
0: It seems like Brennan can't trust anyone now. Not Leland Dolan, not Cassie, and definitely not his hostile boss. The noose is tightening. Will Brennan continue to investigate or cave to the ever increasing danger lurking all around? Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to Camcat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Photo Thief now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you! Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.